Get the facts. Stretch your mind. Expand your horizons. Our study leader Dave Wurtzen wants to challenge us to consider the fact that being right is not enough. Knowledge in itself cannot be our ultimate goal. He begins by taking us back to his first day in doctoral studies as his major professor laid out some serious challenges, but also a strong warning. When I began doctoral studies at Dallas Theological Seminary, the very first day of class, I was scared to death, like most doctoral students. I was facing a formidable foe, and for about a year he was a foe, because when you begin a doctoral program, the teachers try to challenge you. And my doctoral professor began our first day in class something like this. He looked at us, a group of seven fellas, and he said, I'm concerned about each one of you. In fact, I'm frightened for you. The reason that I'm frightened is that my job in the next three years is to give you knowledge. It's to take your brain and to teach it to be critical, teach it to make very fine distinctions, teach it a lot of theology, and I'm going to take your brain and I'm going to stretch it to the breaking point almost. And that's what scares me because I'm afraid that all you're going to get is knowledge and it will produce pride. And instead of becoming a builder of God's family, you'll become a demolition expert. And then he went on to read the key words of our text today. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And let's turn in our Bibles in God's holy word to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul says, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge gives you a big head. Knowledge produces pride, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And that's the essence of what the Apostle Paul wants to talk to us about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He is going to talk about an ancient problem, a problem that most of us externally don't have to deal with, and yet the principles that he dealt with with the Corinthian people are very much alive in our own midst today. One of the greatest temptations is to make knowledge the goal, is to make accurate information, accurate teaching about God the ultimate objective for which we gather. We can gather together on a Sunday morning and what we're very much concerned about is did we hear truth? And I want you to be concerned about that. I want you to be very concerned that we be accurate biblically, that we learn the right ideas, that we learn the right truths about God. But what I want to communicate to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is that truth is not enough. Truth is not enough. You can have the right theology, you can have all the right facts about God, and you can be dead wrong. Because Christian life, the Christian life, doesn't flow out of truth alone, but it's built on truth permeated with love. And the question is not so much in the Christian life, am I right, but am I loving? And that's what Paul's going to talk to the Corinthians about. And let's begin with 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. 
Now about food sacrificed to idols. Paul introduces his subject for the next few chapters. Chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11 are primarily going to deal with the interaction of the Christian with an idolatrous culture. And that theme is the underpinning of these chapters. Are you going to worship the true God or are you going to be involved in a society that's worshiping idols? Are you going to eat at the feast of Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Are you going to be very much involved with longing to express love for Jesus at the Lord's table? Or would you rather be out there with secular people worshiping the gods of materialism, immorality? And in the Corinthian world, it was a very, very clear mix in the sense that when you were often invited out with friends, instead of inviting you to go to uh, steak and ale, or instead of inviting you to go to the Black Eyed Pea, they would invite you to go to the temple of Serapis, or to the temple of Asclepius, the god of healing. And it was like the restaurant of the ancient world. You would go to a banquet in the temple, some of the meat would be offered to the god. Some of the meat would be roasted perfectly for you. And then some of the meat that was left over from these sacrifices in these heathen temples would be sold at the equivalent of Kroger's or or Tom Thumb. Some of that meat would be sold in the grocery stores there in the marketplace, open markets. Now, this created a very complex problem for the Corinthians because it was social to go to one of these restaurants that was connected with a temple. Now, the issue was, should the born-again believer who lives in Corinth, who's come to know Christ, who no longer believes in the reality of idols, who no longer believes that the temple is the place of truth, these heathen temples, instead they found reality in Jesus Christ, Should they go and eat at these festivals? And it was a big social problem. And in these chapters, chapter 8, 9, and 10, Paul interacts with different flavors of the problem. In fact, it's very hard to decipher exactly which side of the problem he's dealing with. Because there's one problem of going to the temple and eating in the temple with a group of friends at a festival where the heart of the feast was to worship the idol? That was one question. Should I go and worship in the idolatrous temple and eat the meat there? That was one problem. Another problem was, should I buy this meat that's been offered in the marketplace? In other words, it was offered to an idol. Has something magically taken place or has something contaminated this meat? Will I let demons into my house if I buy the meat in the marketplace? And a third problem was, what do I do when my unbelieving friends invite me not to go to the temple with them, like an idolatrous temple, but instead they invite me over to their house? And I walk into the house and they're cooking a marvelous ham. Oh, I mean, I poured honey over it. It just smells delicious. What do I do then? In other words, do I ask my hostess, was that ham offered as a sacrifice? Is it idolatrous ham? Is it heathen ham? Will it contaminate me? 
In other words, if I'm invited to go out with unbelievers to their home, and it's a neutral setting, but they serve meat that's been offered to idols, what do I do about that? Now, those are difficult problems. They're not very emotional for us. None of you have been invited to go to the temple of Asclepius. But the principles that Paul teaches about the demon world, and we're going to learn in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that there are demons. There really is a satanic world, contrary to what most of the modern world in America wants to believe. Most of the world's smarter than we are about that. Most places you go know that demons are real. They know that Satan is a prince of darkness. Tragically, much of the world worships him because who worries about the good God? The good guy is not going to hurt you anyway. You need to placate the bad guy that wants to get you. Much of the world worships like that. We're going to learn that there is an evil kingdom, but praise God, we're going to learn about the Lord of Lords. We're going to learn a lot about the reality of demonology. But what about things that relate to that idolatrous world? And that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is about. Now about food, sacrifice to idols. We know that all possess knowledge. And so we begin our passage by talking about the priority of love over knowledge. But we begin with some of the Corinthians thinking. Paul goes underneath all that's going on, the actual practice of the Corinthian church, and he goes to the heart of their problem. And Paul has a great knack for doing that. He doesn't just deal with externals, but he goes underneath and he deals with us where we are genuinely at, where our thinking, the foundation of our behavior is flowing from. And he says this, we know that we all possess knowledge. I think that was a Corinthian slogan. We know that we all possess knowledge. We learned in chapter 1 that the Corinthians were one of the most gifted churches. This was the Corinthian slogan. We know that we all possess knowledge. The Corinthians were prideful about the truths, the deep truths that they had learned. In chapter 1, Paul talked about their gnosis and their wisdom. In chapter 2, we had a whole discussion about the wisdom that the Corinthians were prideful about. And Paul said they needed to get back to the foolishness of the cross. So I think that in verse 1, we have the slogan phrase of the Corinthians. We know that everyone has knowledge. Everyone in our group knows good theology. Every one of us in our group can dot all of our I's and cross all of our T's. We know about idolatry. We know about food offered to idols. We know the truth. Then Paul says our key word, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Then he goes on to explain what he means by that. The man who thinks that he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. The man who thinks that he knows, in fact, there's something, there's a lot of textual problems in this verse. And one of them is whether or not that something belongs there. We might read, the man who thinks that he knows... The man who thinks that he's arrived, and it's not that big a difference in thought, but it's a little bit different feel. The man who thinks that he's arrived at a state of knowledge. Paul says, that man doesn't really know. 
It's not so much talking about the fact that the Corinthians don't have enough information, that they have a little truth and a little truth is dangerous or a little knowledge is dangerous. It's more the concept that their focus is on knowledge. Knowledge is such. And they think now they've arrived at a place of knowledge. And Paul says the man that thinks that he's arrived does not yet know as he ought to know. One of the characteristics of a wise person is not that they think that they know. In fact, when you think that you know, you don't know. Because the reality of becoming wise, the reality of becoming knowledgeable, is that you recognize more and more that there's so much that you don't know. And someone that's coming across like, I've got all the truth biblically, I have all the knowledge I could possibly need, is a person that doesn't really know. Because the truth of someone that does know their field is they realize that you never arrive. That we're all just children. That we're all just learners. It doesn't mean that we don't know anything. But a person that has a genuine handle on truth loves truth so much that they don't make their little tiny field a worship area thinking then that they know all things. Our culture needs to listen very seriously to this. Not only in theology, but in every field. We think that if a man has a Ph.D. in a very small area of life, that they know everything. We think that if an actor or an actress is an expert in acting, and if they go to the Yale School of Drama, and then if they go to New York City and they become very skilled in drama, that that means they're an expert on motor oil. Now, that doesn't make any sense at all if you isolate it. But our idea is that if you have knowledge, that it explodes in every area. That's especially dangerous in the area of theology. The Corinthians were pridefully saying, we're the smart church. We're the thinking church. We're the church that really knows theology. The Apostle Paul is saying that very attitude shows that you haven't gone where theology is supposed to lead because theology should always lead to your needs. Accurate knowledge about God should always lead to worship. And when you get a hold of how infinite and how majestic and how mighty God is, then you can never be prideful about it. A person that genuinely knows God gets down on their knees. They never stand up. And that's the underpinnings of what Paul is getting across. Then he says in verse 3, But the man who loves God is known by God. Now Paul pulled a switch on us here. You say, Dave, you've been talking to us about knowledge. Why does Paul get love involved there? He jumped from knowledge to love. And he relates those two things together. He says, the man who loves God is known by God. Or another way of translating it would be, that individual is in the know. That individual is genuinely getting to know. These two words are very interesting. You see, as Americans especially, we think of knowledge as something that happens in your head. We think of knowledge as something that has to do with facts that you learn, information that you control. When the Bible talks about knowledge, it often thinks of it in terms of intimacy that you have. And Paul, as a Jew, was very much especially in tune to that 
because in Hebrew thinking, to use the word to know, you can often use that in the context of intimate relationships. Like I've taught you in the past, when it says that Sarah knew his wife, it doesn't mean that, that, Ab- that Abraham knew his wife, I mean. It doesn't mean that Abraham knew his wife's name, knew where she was from, knew what her background was, knew all the details of her life, knew that all kinds of factors about her personality. That's not what it means when it says that Abraham knew his wife. You say, well, Dave, how do you know it doesn't mean that? Because the next phrase says, and she conceived and bore a son, and his son was Isaac. The word to know in Hebrew thinking is a term of intimacy. And God, in his word, presents knowledge of him equated with intimate love for him. When we come back to the first commandment that we've talked about often in our time together this year, what are we doing? We are loving God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our might. And the person who has accurate theology, and it leads to love for God, that individual is the one who shows evidence that God knows them. And the word no in that context can be used of God chose them. God elected them. God is especially enjoying relationship with them. I want to clear up some things. In our culture, we tend to go from one extreme to the next. We have one church that has a lot of knowledge, a lot of theology, a lot of good, accurate thinking. It can be a church like ours. Our kids learn the Bible verses. Our kids in Sunday school learn the Bible verses. Our kids learn the facts. Our kids that have grown up in our church can take Bible trivia tests and do very well. They have knowledge. But a lot of you as parents will say, well, what's wrong when they get to be teenagers and everything goes haywire? You know, what's wrong? They learned all the verses. We brought them every time they came here. Every time we were supposed to be here, we were here. What went wrong? Knowledge is not enough. That's what went wrong. Because knowledge needs to lead to intimacy. So what do you do then? Then you get involved in a group of believers that emphasize all relationship, all emotion. In other words, you just sing for three hours straight. Open our eyes, Lord. And it's very emotional. We have all kinds of feelings. And that's great. But they never get down to accurately teaching what the Word of God says. So you have one church that has all kinds of intimacy, all kinds of emotion, all kinds of love, supposedly. Another church with knowledge. Now, what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that we need to get our head and our hearts together. You see, you don't really know God if you don't know accurately what he's like. You might be loving an idol. If you don't have an accurate idea of what God is genuinely like, You might be very much in love, but you might be in love with the wrong person. You might even be in love with a thing that's not even there. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that we need to have knowledge of God. But that knowledge of God is to lead to intimacy with God. And that's the individual, wondrously, that's the individual that God knows. And I think every one of you should rejoice. The fact that you're worshiping the Lord, studying His Word, disciplining your lives to learn about the truth shows that you're one of those special people 
that the Lord wants to know. Paul has a marvelous balance. He's not saying no theology. In our day, we have a lot of people saying, we don't want to have any doctrine. Every time you hear a preacher teach, you hear doctrine. It's doctrine if you just talk about emotions. It's teaching. It's a way of looking at life. And our culture needs very much to come back to the question, is it true? And is it right? But what I'm teaching is that being right is not enough. That leads us to the next few verses. Paul talks about the Corinthians' orthodoxy. Let's look at it. We have the orthodox teaching, but we're going to find out that their orthodox theology wasn't enough. And what we have is very accurate teaching about idolatry. Look what the Corinthians believe. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing in the world. I want all of you to realize that Serapis and Asclepius, you don't even know who they are. And it's not important that you do know who they are because they don't exist. They're not real beings. Across the world, like over in Africa, when they worship little idols, in different areas of the world, when they worship different other gods, I want you to know something. They don't exist. In reality, in the spiritual world, there's no such thing as Serapis. There's no such thing as the god of healing, Asclepius. There's no such thing as the goddess Isis. There's no such thing as the goddess of Rome, Venus. They don't exist. They're just mythology. You'll read about them in some of your classes. In Greek mythology, you'll read about all these gods and goddesses. And the truth is, they don't exist. In reality, in objective spiritual reality, in the eternal world, when you pass on into the world of God, you'll find out that those things were just made-up, pretend things. They were myths. I want you to understand something else. We are very much in danger in the American church. I think it's very possible we're very much in danger right here of thinking that's what Jesus is like. The air that you breathe, the atmosphere that you believe, believes the same thing about Jesus. People in our culture think of Jesus as being a myth. Now, idols are mythology. False religions are all mythology. Christianity cuts across all of that, and contrary to any other religion, it says it's true. It happened in history. It happened in space, time, and history. I believe that if you went to the tomb on Easter morning, there would be a genuine rock that was genuinely rolled away. There would be a genuine tomb that was empty. And I would think that night, if you were with the disciples, you would eat a genuine meal with a genuine man that you could touch. And he had just hung on a cross three days before, and he was bloody, and he was ugly, and he was dead, dead, dead. And on Easter night, he was alive, alive, alive. Now, that's not a myth. Bultmann taught it was a myth. Many German theologians have taught a myth. Most people today in our culture are not nearly as blatant as that. We go through all the language. We go through all the customs. We want our kids to get involved in a tradition because we like the ethics of Christianity, but we don't believe the reality of it. And I want to warn you strongly as your pastor, 
Don't let that poison you. What I need in your home is I need some daddies that genuinely believe Christ is alive. From the time that your daughter and son are little tiny kids, they know daddy believes Jesus is living. And it permeates every area of his life. He can't cheat on his income tax this time of the year. Why not? Because Jesus is alive. Jesus knows everything I'm doing. I'm going to go to be with Jesus. I love him. How could I ever be one of his children and lie when he's told me I ought to pay taxes? Kids ought to see that in daddy from the time that they're little tiny kids. And you can bring them right here to this church every single time the doors are open. If you're not like that in your home, then it's not going to fly. Kids need to see mommy break maybe at night. Say, man, kids, I was stressed out today. I was under a lot of pressure. I didn't feel very well. And I just, I was angry. You should have obeyed me, but I was angry. And I was very angry and it was hateful. Will you forgive me? Because we love Jesus and the way I acted really wasn't biblical. It wasn't right. And what we hear on Sunday morning is not just something that we read in a little book and it's nice, makes it feel good for a couple hours, but during the week we forget all about it. A lot of you ask me, what goes wrong with kids? That's the number one thing that goes wrong with kids, hypocrisy. Now, you can be genuine as a perfect silver dollar and your kids can still make the wrong choice because there's no guarantees with human nature because God loves our kids enough to make them little people, not little robots. So you can't jump from the idea that this kid went wrong, these parents weren't authentic. But we can't take that reality that our kids will make choices and allow it to become an excuse for the unreality of our own living. The idols don't exist. Jesus Christ does. It's accurate theology that there's no such thing as heathen religion in the sense of the content the objective things that they're saying are not objective. There's no Isis, there's no Serapis, there's no Asclepius, there's no idols. Yes, people worship them. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But the objective underpinning of eternal reality is they're not even there. The Corinthians knew that. And that was accurate. Then they were even more orthodox. It says there is no God but one. Do you worship an American God that does what Americans need? and helps Americans to get through. That's not what biblical Christianity is about. Our church is a mission church. We are on a mission in the world. You say, why? Because there's only one God, but one. Everybody in the world one day is going to stand before this unique God. The only true God. There's not many gods. Don't believe it when your politician stands up in the United Nations and say, we all worship the great eternal being. Baloney. We don't worship the same eternal being. There's an accurate biblical God who speaks in every word of Scripture, and there's a mess of false gods. And I respect their beliefs, and I can't manipulate them into, into receiving my beliefs. I can never force them to receive my beliefs, but oh, how I must care that they come to know the truth. I know that our society doesn't like that. The one thing that we don't buy in our society is that there is a one true God who reveals himself in history and who does speak and is actually there. 
the truth that we buy is, well, there are just many different gods and many different people have ways of worshiping. That would wash if the true God, who is objectively there, didn't say anything. But he has. Praise God that he has. We're not on a lonely, silent planet. We're on a planet that's been invaded by the character and the person of God and the person of Jesus Christ. The Corinthians were right about that. There's only one God. Then they say this. There's only one God, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, and this brings us into the reality of where we live. True, spiritually, in the objective eternal world, there's no such thing as an idol. But in the world, there are many gods. People worship many different objects of worship. They make up many different things and people that they can bow down before. So in the world of Paul's day, as in our own day, people worship many different gods. And there's many so-called authorities. And that permeates our modern world. One of my close friends was sharing how when he played baseball, if he won a game, he'd never change his socks. His mom used to love it, I bet. But if he won the game, he'd keep the same pair of pants on, same everything. I won't go into all details. Why? Because athletes are very concerned about the underpinnings of the authority of who helps them win the game. There's a lot of superstition in athletics. Why do you do that? Because you want to get a handle on this underlying power. That power that, that makes the difference in the ninth inning when you come up against that pitcher and there's one more shot to do it and everything hangs in a thread that when you swing the bat, the force will be with you and you'll hit a home run. Now you all laugh about that, but every single one of us are influenced by that kind of thinking. Those mysterious powers. And we have all kinds of ways to do it. And just like in the ancient world, that's what the idols were like, only they made little statues and big statues and medium-sized statues, and they put them in their homes. We're just a lot more subtle about it, but superstition. There are in human circles all different kinds of superstitions about God. And so though idols don't genuinely exist, there's no objective reality to them, subjectively, as human beings learn about life, they tend to create their own gods. We learned about that in Romans chapter 1. They turn away from the true God, and then they create their own little gods. And so we have a reality. There's only one God but one. The idols that men create are non-existent, but we are living in the world, and therefore as we deal with people, idols have subjective reality in people's minds and in their hearts. Paul recognizes all that. So the Corinthians. Yet for us, that's the way the unbelieving world lives. The unbelieving world does have all these different idols and false gods. But we as believers have only one God. We know the truth. And He is not just the great supreme being, but He is our Father. He's our great eternal Daddy. And that changes everything. We have not a great impersonal God that's up there. But we have a great loving Father who cares about every single one of us. That makes all the difference in the world. It's like some of you wondering, where's the next job going to come from? And our daddy in heaven cares about that. 
And he hears when you cry. And he hears when all your self-esteem goes out the window because you wonder, how can I meet the needs of my family? He cries with all of us. And he experiences with all of us when one of us becomes sick. And the tremendous fear of maybe losing physical life. We have a daddy in heaven who cares. He cares when one of our kids slips away and we don't know where they are. As they go through the rough and tumble of moving through into adulthood and they're trying to get away from home and yet they want to stay and they're trying to get away and they want to stay. We have a daddy in heaven who understands that and he responds to that. Isn't that great? We have a father who is in heaven. So we not only know the one true God, but we have a daddy who's in heaven that genuinely cares. But that daddy in heaven chose to reveal himself very specifically through the Lord Jesus Christ. So that though there are many gods, the false world, the false religious world has many gods. We have the one true father. What a difference. And though the world worships many lords, many different authorities that exercise influence on people, we worship the ultimate Lord, the one who has the ultimate authority, the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. We really need to recognize what it's saying about Jesus Christ. I want you to understand something. There's a lot of debate about creation. And our kids you know, are being exposed to evolution and all that. I don't think that the Christianity ever should encourage ignorance. And there's a lot of debate about creation. Genesis chapter 1 through 11 posed some difficult interpretation things. And I have my views. I have very dear friends right within our church family that have a little bit different views. But I want you to understand something. One thing that if you're a born-again believer, you need to be absolutely clear about is that your Lord Jesus Christ brought this planet into existence, brought all of the universe into existence, and most importantly of all, this Lord Jesus Christ brought human beings into existence. Philosophically, you are on a totally different religion if you believe that life developed spontaneously and it developed in many different areas of the world and it produced many different races, if that's true, then the black people in Dallas have no relationship to me at all and it doesn't make any difference how I treat them as long as I can maintain my own power. Now that's getting down where it hurts, but it's true. And the white people might not have any relationship to the brown people, who don't have any relationship to the red people, who have no relationship to the white people. And it goes on and on and on and on. That's where it leads. Our belief in creation leads something totally different. You know what the Bible says? Red and yellow, black and white. They all came to existence through him. When Dave Wurtzen looks at a black man, he's one with me. He's created by the sovereign God that I love and worship. And he needs to feel the same about me. It's not a skin problem. It's a false idea about God that leads to all kinds of divorces in the human race and all kinds of serious problems. And we as believers need to not be poisoned and get involved in the same kind of bigotry, and it's in all of us. But there's only one Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, all human beings were created. 
And I want to be very honest with you because I'm not picking on you. I've shared with this in the past. Down through the years, I've shared with you. I am probably more southern than almost any of you because you are Texans. You are Texans, which I think is a little bit different than southern. I went to a high school where my roommates went out on the weekend when they went home for break, and they shot people because they thought they were animals in Alabama. And our school didn't let certain people that had different color skin come near the campus except to do one thing, and that was to pick oranges. And that was the belief, and that was a Christian, quote, quote, school. And that's the way we were trained. And I have to admit, you know, when we have a basketball camp and they're 75% different than I am, then I feel like the outsider. And it's scary. And it's hard not to have anger. And there's a lot of anger on the other side. Because of all the history that goes behind it, what I'm calling for and want us to be honest. We need to be honest about our feelings. And I'm showing you the way out. And I'm showing myself the way out. I want to see a church family one day that looks like the rainbow that Jesus talks about because he died. The idea of Jesus dying for all men and Jesus wanting all men to come to himself, that needs to be the focus of our lives. That's what changes me. When I look at a man, whether he's from a lower class or a higher class, a different color, different race, different place in the world, different part of the country. When I start to look at a man and I remember, Jesus is his Lord. Jesus died for him. Does he know Jesus? Can I have an opportunity to help him to come to know Jesus? What can I do to express the love of Jesus to him? And when I find out that that individual is my brother, down through the years I found again and again and again, that the bond of unity, which so many of you understand, conquers these very deep-seated divisions in the human race. You know, the Corinthians understood all of that. They did. They had right theology. They knew that God was one. They knew that the Lord Jesus was the ultimate Lord. They knew that idols didn't exist. But we're going to learn that they balled it all up. They missed it. Because they took those deductions, there's no such thing as idols, because God is one, and they concluded, therefore, we can do anything we want with idolatry, we can eat any food that we want, it doesn't make any difference, we're going to learn that the ultimate criterion for our behavior is not accurate theology, but it's love for one another. As you interact with people, do you operate on the criterion of, I've got knowledge, and I have my rights, and I have freedom in Christ to do that. Or do you act on the principle, I wonder if this will hurt my brother. I wonder if this will hurt my sister. I wonder if this will tear things down or build it up. I think as a group of believers, the Lord is calling us to be redemptive people. You see, Christ takes us deeper and says, political answers won't deal with the deepest need of the human heart. But Jesus, who is Lord of all, will. And believers who know the truth about him, but don't stop at the truth, but go on to allow that truth to generate love in the application. Those are the believers 
that have their needs powerfully met.